information in light of notions of form and information. Uh, we're on the part on psychic individuation, um, which is not a distinct part in the English translation for some reason, but in, in French, this is the third part of the book. Uh, and we're on chapter one of, of that part. So last time we saw Simon Dau's criticism of associationism and Gestalt psychology for not having uh, an account of individuation in uh, the psychological field, in the case specifically of perception. In, in perception, we perceive individuated objects, um, but neither associationism nor Gestalt psychology is able to account for this perception, uh, according to Simon Dau. He suggests that we need an account of individuation uh, in the psychic or, or psychological realm that would account for the genesis of forms. So he, he criticizes the way that uh, psychological experiments are conducted so that we have what is essentially just psych students in, uh, in a lab setting a completely controlled environment uh, and there's relatively little uh, emotional relevance, I guess, um, to the subject, whatever the task that they're conducting, whether it's identifying shapes or, or something like that in a lab setting, it's something that the student or the, the subject is not um, emotionally invested in. And uh, Simonon suggests that we, would, we should instead look for the genesis of forms in situations that have a strong uh, emotional charge to them. Uh, and so he points to um, the example of the child seeing uh, an animal for the first time. Uh, so they have a reaction of fear or uh, excitement or uh, wonder, whatever set of emotions you might find in that child that is, is going to be um, an emotionally charged experience. And the child has this uh, capacity to recognize the form of the animal, recognize where the head and, and the tail are and, and which direction the animal is facing, whether what, what sort of um, attitude the animal has towards the child. Um, they're able to, the child is able to recognize the form of the animal uh, in this very specific way through, through the situation of uh, this intense emotional experience or this situation that has a high degree of tension. Uh, and then so we also saw Simon Don went over some of this uh, we've seen before, but went over the notion of information in more detail than uh, in previous parts of the book. Specifically, he talks about how in the case of how there's these sort of two converse notions of information, how we have in information theory, we have this notion of transmission of information where um, the, the less probable a message is, the more information it carries. And then we have this notion from Gestalt psychology of a, of a good form uh, in which uh, a form is, uh, is good to the extent that it is the more probable form. So it's, it's something that, that the uh, perceptual system comes to rest on. Uh, so something like a, a circle or a triangle is, uh, is a sort of form that we can identify even if it's behind obstacles or if it's covered by other lines or something like that. And so Simon Don points to the fact that these simple geometrical figures are not really the forms that have the most uh, emotional relevance, I guess, or the ones that that have the most aesthetic value in perception. So in he points to the example of uh, a column in a in a building. In in general, we don't or the the most aesthetically pleasing form of the column is not just a perfect cylinder, 
it's it's actually a, a tapered cylinder which is slightly asymmetrical so that it has uh, it's wider below the the midpoint the the widest point <clears throat> is below the vertical midpoint of this of the the column um, what this shows according to Simon Dong is that is that what we the types of forms that that perception is geared towards are not um, are not these simple geometrical figures it's these much more complicated forms that are that are invented that there's an actual invention of forms rather than this sort of pre-given geometrical figures i think that's about where we ended up last time where we we ended up last time so let's pick up from uh, page 263 i'm not sure i guess we're in the middle of the page here with the uh one of these long paragraphs sure yeah angus if you want to read um no, that's uh, that's great. Um, okay, I'm gonna start on this first. I guess it's uh, the last paragraph in the in subsection three on 263. The physical problem of individuality is not just a problem of topology. For what topology lacks is the consideration of potentials. Precisely because they are potentials and not structures, potentials can be represented as graphical elements of the situation. The situation in which physical individuation arises is spatio-temporal insofar as it is a metastable state. Under these conditions, physical individuation, and more generally the study of physical forms, involves a theory of metastability that contemplates the processes of exchange between spatial configurations and temporal sequences. This theory can be called allegmatics. Allegmatics must be related to information theory, which contemplates the translation of temporal sequences into spatial organization or vice versa. Yet, since it proceeds on this point like gestalt theory, information theory instead contemplates already given sequences or configurations and can hardly define the conditions of their genesis. On the contrary, what must be contemplated is absolute genesis, like the mutual exchanges of forms, structures, and temporal sequences. Such a theory could then become the shared foundation of information theory and gestalt theory in physics. These two theories, in fact, cannot be used in the study of the individual because they employ mutually incompatible criteria. On the one hand, Gestalt theory privileges the simplicity and pregnancy of forms. On the contrary, the quantity of information defined by information theory rises with the number of decisions involved. Corresponding to an elementary mathematical law, the more predictable the form, the easier it can be transmitted with a small quantity of, of signals. On the contrary, what is hard to transmit and requires an elevated quantity of information is anything that avoids all monotony and stereotypy. The simplification of forms, the elimination of details, and the increase of contrast corresponds to a loss in the quantity of information. However, the individuation of physical beings is neither assimilable to simple geometrical good form nor to the high quantity of information understood as a large number of transmitted signals. It consists of two aspects, form and information, joined together in a unity. No physical object is merely a good form, but moreover, the cohesion and stability of the physical object are not proportional to its quantity of information, or more exactly, to the quantity of information signals that must be utilized to correctly transmit a knowledge to its subject. Whence the necessity of a mediation? The individuation of the physical object is neither that of the pure discontinuous, like the rectangle or the square, nor that of the continuous, i.e. structures, they require almost an infinite number of information signals to be transmitted. So it sounds like this is this point that he's made before about the the incompatibility of information theory and gestalt theory, where like, as you've pointed out, you know, transmitting an image of a bunch of sand on a table 
actually contains more information in the quantitative information theoretical sense than the transmission of something like an image of a triangle. Uh, but obviously, for Gestalt theory, the triangle is what uh, what informs perception rather than the quantity of information transmitted. Yeah, so we need to have <clears throat> some sort of um, some sort of notion of form slash information that is uh, a, a mediation between the two or a unification of the two. Um, so we have, um, he uses sometimes different terms for this. So he sometimes talks about attention of information as what characterizes um, uh, a good form, not in the Gestalt psychology sense, but in, in the sense of what um, perception uh, actually uh, is, is directed towards. So um, the more complex notion of form. Um, so yeah, this notion of uh, attention of information, or or here he talks about allegmatics as the the discipline that would study this um, property. Um, so it's it's a, a sort of unification of information and form, or a mediation between information and form. Um, there are a couple of small points of translation that I wanted to point out also here, or. Um, I think they're actually mistakes of translation. It doesn't change too much in the overall meaning of the passage, but I think they're worth pointing out. Um, so right near the beginning in the translation, it says, um, uh, precisely because they are potentials and not structures, potentials can be represented as graphical elements of the situation. Um, in French, it actually says they cannot be represented as graphical elements of the situation. Um, so the idea here, is that um, in in the topology of the situation, there's um, you can you can sort of represent the um, relative locations of the different uh, elements of the situation, but you can't represent the the potentials the the, the potential energy of the situation in this graphical form. Um, so um, yeah, there's just a missing negation there in which um sort of reverses the the meaning of the sentence uh and then there was another one uh yeah right right near the end of the of the uh paragraph we just read um so uh on on 264 um about halfway down that or a quarter of the way down the page um it says no physical object is merely a good form but moreover, the cohesion and stability of the physical object are not proportional to its quantity of information, or more exactly to the quantity of information signals that must be utilized to, cor to correctly transmit a knowledge to its subject. Um, it should be transmit a knowledge um, concerning it or, con or on, it, on the subject of, of uh, the object or something like that. Um, it's, not, it's not about transmitting to a, a subject, it's about um, what it means, what he's talking about here is um, uh, the quantity of information that would be required to transmit um, a description of an object. Uh, and so this can be a, a completely um, uh, mechanical uh, transmission. It doesn't necessarily require something like a, a human subject as a, as a recipient. Um, 
So you can just take like a, a, a description of, of an object and transmit it um, to a, a computer or, or some other um, machine and, and not have a, a human in the, uh, in the loop. Um, so yeah, that's another bit of a translation error, um, which I mean, neither of these I, I think is like a, a, a big um, impact on the, the total meaning of the, the paragraph, but yeah, just um, thought it was worth pointing out. Okay, so we can go on to the next subsection, which is just one paragraph. Um, uh, and this sort of continues the thought of the um, um, of the previous section. Um, so I can read this one. So subsection four, introduction of the notion of quantum variation into the representation of psychical individuation. It seems that a research path can be discovered in the notion of quantum. Subjectively, it is possible to quite paradoxically increase the quantity of useful signals by introducing a quantum condition, which in fact diminishes the system's veritable quantity of information within which there is information. Thus, by increasing the contrast of a photograph or a television image, one enhances the perception of objects although one loses information in the sense of information theory. What humans perceive in objects when they grasp them as individual is therefore not an indefinite source of signals, an inexhaustible reality like matter, which allows itself to be analyzed indefinitely. What they perceive is the reality of certain thresholds of intensity and of quality maintained by objects. If it were pure form or pure matter, the physical object would be nothing. If it were an, an alliance of form and matter, it would, be, it would merely be a contradiction the physical object is an organization of thresholds and, and of levels that is maintained and transposed throughout various situations. The physical object is a bundle of differential relations and its perception as individual is the grasping of the coherence of this bundle of relations. A crystal is an individual not because it possesses a geometrical form or an ensemble of elementary particles, but because all of its optical, thermal, elastic, electrical, piezoelectrical properties undergo an abrupt variation when we pass from one facet to another. Without this coherence of a multitude of properties with highly variable values, a crystal would be nothing but a geometrical form associated with a chemical species and not a veritable individual. Hylomorphism here is radically insufficient since it cannot define this characteristic of, of unified plurality and pluralized unity consisting of a bundle of quantum relations. This is why at the very level of the individual, the notion of polarity is prominent. Without it, the unity of the, these quantum relations could not be understood. Moreover, it could be that this quantum condition allows us to understand why the physical object can be perceived directly in its individuality. An analysis of physical reality cannot be separated from a reflection on the very conditions of knowledge. Um, yeah, when he talks about facets here, he's, he's talking specifically about the, the faces of the crystal. Um, um, sorry, where does he use that term facets? Um, yes, uh, so he's talking about the, the faces of the crystal right at the bottom of 264. Um, but he's taking that as an example um, uh, of these threshold effects in general. So when he talks about the, the quantum character, that's what he's talking about is um, threshold effects in, uh, in the properties of objects. So it's not the case that we have um, something like uh, a, 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 a continuous and um, uh, infinitely dense uh, set of uh, 
numerical properties of objects. Um, instead, we have these threshold effects so that uh, like the optical properties of a crystal will have uh, an abrupt transition from one face to another rather than a, a continuous transition. Um, and, and in general, properties of, of objects that have individuality in, uh, in the specific sense that Simondon wants to use the term uh, um, have this property of having these abrupt thresholds. Uh, so um, in the case of uh, living individuals, we have um, um, we have thresholds of, of different kinds rather than um, something just simple like a, a, an optical transmission quality or something like that. We have um, thresholds of, uh, I don't know, like physical size, for instance, like, um, you know, a, an ant can only be a certain size range. Uh, it, you can't have an ant that's three meters long or something like that. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so you have different threshold effects in, in the case of living organisms and, and maybe more complicated ones like different ratios of chemicals in the bloodstream, for example. Um, but uh, in general, we have these uh, threshold properties that um, make it possible to grasp uh, an individual uh, as, as an individual rather than just as a, um, an infinite set of, of properties uh, with continuous variation. Okay, so let's go on to the, the next subsection here. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Uh, uh, five? Yes, yeah, we're at subsection five. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, uh, the perceptive problem of uh, information, quality of information, intensity of information. It is necessary to define more precisely what can be understood by quantity of information and by form. Two fairly uh, different senses are presented by information theory and gestalt theory. Gestalt theory defines uh, good forms by pregnancy and simplicity. The good form, the one that has the capacity to impose itself, prevails over forms that have less coherence, uh, clarity, and pregnancy. Uh, thus, the circle and the square are good forms. By contrast, information theory responds to an ensemble of uh, technical problems which are contemporary to the usage of low currents in the transmission of signals and in the usage of the different modes of recording of light and sound signals. When a scene is recorded via photography, film, tape recorder, or videotape, the overall situation must be decomposed into a set of elements that are recorded by a modification imposed upon a very large number of physical individuals ordered according to a spatial, temporal, or mixed example spatio-temporal organization. Um, photography can be taken as an example of spatial organization. It is active uh, part it is in its active part, a photographic uh, surface, which is the support of signals, is constituted by an emulsion that uh, contains a multitude of silver grains in the basic form of a chemical combination. If the optical system uh, were um, supposed as perfect and given that the optical image is projected onto the, this emulation, we obtain a more or less accentuated uh, chemical transformation of the chemical combination that constitutes the emulsion. 
but the capacity of this uh, emulsion to uh, record small details uh, depends on the finesse of the uh, particles. The translation of a continuous optical line into a chemical reality within an emulsion is constituted by a discontinuous uh, trail of sensible grains. Uh, the rarer and coarser these grains are, the more difficult it is uh, to pin down a small detail with uh, sufficient fidelity. Examined under a microscope, an emulsion that should reveal new details, uh, if it had a continuous structure, uh, shows nothing uh, but an unformed mist of discontinuous grains. Uh, what is known as an emulsion's degree of definition or resolving power can thus be measured by the number of distinct details capable of being recorded on a determined surface. For example, on a current type of emulsion, one square millimeter can contain 5,000 distinct details. Uh, do I stop? Uh, yeah, we can stop here for now. Um, yeah, so Angus, um, yeah, I think that's right. The, uh, um, this, this bit here, this passage is about um, uh, the recording of information, so the, the quantity of information um, um, that, that needs to be um, available in order to record uh, a signal kind. Uh, so in this case, we're talking about uh, a, a, a photographic um, uh, recording. Uh, so the way that a, a film camera works is with some sort of chemical um, uh, that responds to light. Um, and so when, when the, um, the lens apparatus um, transmits the image onto the film, there's a, a chemical change that um, that uh, the film undergoes uh, so that each point on the film uh, has a certain uh, amount of light um, uh, projected onto it. And, uh, and then um, the, the film then reproduces the image by um, effectively having each point uh, correspond to a point of the image. Um, and so, and this is he's talking about black and white photography here. So it's just um, degrees of, of illumination. There's no uh, there's no color involved. Uh, but the the same basic idea applies to color photography. Um, it's just that in the case of color photography, instead of having um, a, a degree of uh, light intensity on on each point, you have uh, also in addition to that, you have the the actual color um, on on each point. So you have much more information in a in a color signal, um, but uh, um, yeah. So here he's just talking about this um, this notion of quantity of information that we've seen um, a few times already in discussion of of information theory. Okay, so let's. Um, so yeah, he's going to go on to talk about um, um, other types of recording. Um, so this is one of his typical sort of um, sets of examples. So he, he talks about photographic um, image recording, and then he's going to talk about audio recording in a bit, uh, and then uh, video recording afterwards. Okay, so I'll read the next um, couple, bit, couple of uh, paragraphs here. 
On the one hand, if we consider a sound recording on a covered strip of magnetic oxide, uh, magnetic iron oxide coating on steel wire or on disc, here we see that the order becomes an order of succession. The distinct physical individuals whose modifications translate and transmit the signals are oxide grains, steel molecules, or clusters of plastic order in, in a line that unreels in front of the air gap of a polarized electromagnet or under the sapphire or diamond of a turntable. The quantity of details that can be recorded per unit of time depends on the number of distinct physical individuals that unreal during this unit of time in front of the place where the recording is carried out. The details engraved on a disk must be smaller than the order of magnitude of the molecular chains that constitute the plastic. Furthermore, frequencies cannot be recorded on a magnetic tape when the number of details, uh, particles magnetized to variable degrees, is larger than the number of particles. Lastly, the variations of a magnetic field cannot be recorded on a steel wire whose sections are too small to receive a magnet magnetization particular to each one. If we attempt to go beyond these limits, the sound would coincide with the background noise constituted by the discontinuity of the elementary particles. On the contrary, if an adequately high unreeling speed is adopted, this background noise is pushed back into the higher frequencies. This noise corresponds quite exactly to the indistinct fog of silver grains that appears when a photograph is examined under a microscope. The sound is recorded as a series of particle masses that are more or less magnetized or arranged in a groove, similar to the way photography consists of a juxtaposition and distribution of more or less concentrated silver grain masses. The limit to the quantity of signals is in fact the discontinuous characteristic of the information support i.e. the finite number of distinct representative elements organized according to the space and time and in which information finds its support. Ultimately, when a movement is to be recorded, the two, the two types of signals, the spatial and the temporal, enter into a sort of conflict, such that one type of signal can be obtained only by partially sacrificing the others, and such that the result is a compromise. Cinematography or television can be used to break movement down into fixed images or to transmit it, in both cases, temporal sequences are cut into, into a series of snapshots that are then successively fixed or transmitted. In television, each separate view is transmitted point by point using the exploring movement of an analyzing spotlight that scans the entire image, generally according to successive straight line segments, just like we read with our eyes. The faster the movement to be transmitted, the higher the number of images required to render it correctly. For a slow movement, e.g. a man walking, five to eight images per second suffice. For a more rapid movement, such as that of an automobile, the rate of 25 complete images per second is insufficient. Under these conditions, the quantity of signals to be transmitted is represented by the number of details to be transmitted per unit of time, similar to the measurement of a frequency. Thus, in order to make full use of all the advantages of its definition, the 819 line television needed to be able to transmit around 15 million details per second. This technical notion of quantities of information conceived as a number of signals is therefore quite different from what Gestalt theories have, have elaborated. Good form is distinguished by its structural quality, not by a number. By contrast, what requires a high quantity of signals in order to be transmitted correctly is a datum's degree of complication. In this respect, the quantity of signals required for the transmission of a determined object does account for the characteristic of good form that it may have. The transmission of the image of a heap of sand or the irregular surface of granite requires the same quantity of signals as the transmission of the image of a well-aligned regiment or the columns of the Parthenon. The measurement of the quantity of, of signals 
that must be utilized neither allows us to define nor compare the different contents of objective data. There is a considerable gap between information signals and the form. It could be said that the quantity of signals appears to increase as the qualities of the form are lost. It is technically easier to transmit the image of a square or a circle than that of a heap of sand. In terms of the quantity of signals, there is no difference between the transmission of an image of text with a meaning and that of an image of text composed of randomly distributed letters. Um, yeah, so we have here the, we, we first saw the description of photographic recording of information, um, and then we have audio recording and then video recording. Um, and so the, the technical details are not that important uh, and some of the technology is different now than it was uh, in 1960 or late 50s when he was writing this um, but the the idea is that um, in order to record more information you have to have more um, um, potential uh, more more individuals that are capable of independent um, decision making or or uh, that are um, set up independently from each other. So in the case of uh, a photograph, you have to have um, uh, each point on the film has to be capable of uh, being illuminated to a certain degree uh, independently of the others. Uh, and in the case of audio recording, you have to have um, um, some uh, strips on, on the tape, for example, that are capable of being magnetized to some degree. Uh, in the case of video recording, you have to be able to um, um, capture both order in time and order in space. So you have a, a, a film, for example, a film camera um, that is um, uh, that passes through the camera at a rate of 25 uh, frames per second um, is the standard. Um, though that may be different now, I'm not sure. Uh, but um, the, the quantity of information that you need to capture to, uh, to reproduce uh, a video depends on the uh, speed of the, the movement that's being recorded. Uh, and so you can, you can see this actually um, with, um, if, you have, if you've seen a movie or, or a TV show, um, a car driving, a lot of the times the, the wheels look like they're going backwards. Uh, and it's because the the speed of the rotation of the wheel is faster than um, than the 25 frames per second, and so it uh, it, it gives this um, sort of optical illusion. Yeah, I um I sometimes look at ceiling fans, and just slightly kind of adjust the my 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 um, frames per second, I guess. And it kind of reverses the direction of the the blades of the fan, and I know that sounds odd if you've never done it before. But if you've done it before, then you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's the same idea. Um, so, like, if you um, sort of stare at it the right way and, and sort of like unfocus your eyes a little bit, you can you can sort of um, um, get get the um, sort of weird effects of uh, the way that the the rotation will look like it's it's stopped or or rotating backwards or something like that um, so yeah it's it's the same the same type of effect so in order to um, 
to capture the the movement of a ceiling fan, you would in the same way you would have to have uh, at least as many frames per second um, as the uh, as the as the speed of rotation of the uh, of the fan. Um, and then if you had uh, if the fan is rotating faster than the frames per second that you uh, that you are using to capture it, then you'll end up with um, like either the fan will look like it's standing still or it'll look like it's rotating backwards or something like that. And you uh, you can see this also with like um, high speed photography, like in, in sports, when you see these like ultra slow-mo um, uh, videos, it, it means that they're recorded um, with much faster um, frames per second. And then when you play it back at um, at a slower frames per sec- a slower rate of frames per second, then you can uh, slow down the the movement, and you can see something something that was very fast in real time. You can see much more slowed down, and and you know analyze where which side of the line someone's foot came down on or whatever. Um, but yeah, so the the general idea here is is that is this opposition between the the simple forms that we have in Gestalt psychology and the degree of information or the the quantity of information uh, that we have in information theory. And there's this opposition between the two um, that we've seen a few times already. Uh, so he's, he's just sort of re, uh, reiterating that same idea here. Uh, and then we'll see he wants to get past that opposition and have a, a notion of... Um, some some sort of intermediate or or synth- synthesized notion that that captures uh, something of of both the simple forms and the uh, quantity of information and, and but is is not reducible to either. Uh, okay, so if someone else would like to read from the bottom of two sixty seven, uh, it would therefore seem. Uh, I can read. Sure, go ahead. It would therefore seem that neither the concept of good form nor that of the quantity of pure information are perfectly adequate for defining the reality of information. Above information is quantity and information is quality, there is what could be called information is intensity. The simplest and most geometrical image is not necessarily the most expressive. The image that has the most meaning for the perceiving subject is not necessarily the image that is most elaborated and meticulously analyzed in its details. The entire subject, with its tendencies, drives, and passions, must be considered in a concrete situation and not as a subject in the laboratory, i.e. a situation that generally has little emotive value. It then appears that the intensity of information can be increased using a voluntary reduction of the quantity of signals or of the of the, the quality of the forms. A high contrast photograph with extreme light and dark areas or one that is slightly out of focus can have more value and intensity than the same photograph with perfect gradation for every detail or a geometrically centered and undistorted photograph. The geometrical rigor of a contour often has less intensity and meaning for the subject than a certain irregularity. A perfectly round or oval face that would embody a good geometrical form would be lifeless and remain cold for the subject who would perceive it. Uh, I'll go ahead and read the next one, too, unless you all think I should stop here. No, go ahead. The intensity of information supposes a subject oriented by a vital dynamism. Information is then what allows the subject to be situated in the world. 
Every received signal in this sense possesses a possible coefficient of intensity due to which we constantly correct our situation relative to the world we inhabit. Pregnant geometrical forms do not allow us to orient ourselves. They are innate schemata of our perception, but these schemata do not introduce a preferential meaning. Information takes on an intensive predominant, predominant meaning at the level of the various gradients, whether they be luminous, colored, dark, olfactory, thermal, etc. The quantity of signals only produces an unpolarized ground. The structures of good forms only provide frameworks. It's not enough to perceive details or ensembles organized in the unity of a good form. These details and ensembles must have meaning with respect to us and be grasped as intermediaries between the subject and the world, as signals that allow for the coupling of the subject and the world. The object is an exceptional reality. What is usually perceived is not the object, but the world, which is polarized in such a way that the situation has meaning. The object, properly speaking, only appears in an artificial situation that is somewhat exceptional. However, the very rigorous and absolute consequences of Gestalt theory relative to the spontaneous nature of perceptive processes deserve to be examined with more precision. It is undoubtedly true that the grasping of forms takes place immediately without a learning process or without resorting to a formation that would be carried out due to habit. But perhaps it is not true that, the, that grasping the meaning of a situation is this primitive and that no learning process intervenes. Affectivity can be qualified, transposed, and modified. In certain cases, it can also be inverted. One aspect of defeatist behavior is the general negativism of subsequent behavior. Everything that attracted the subject before its failure is rejected. All spontaneous movements are refused and transformed into their opposite. Situations are grasped backwards and read in reverse. Failure neuroses manifest this inversion of polarity, but the training of an animal that presents definite tropisms or taxis already shows this possibility of the inversion of polarity. I don't want to derailed the discussion, but because I'm reading Being in Time for the first time, this section made me think this idea of, of the object as an exceptional reality um, and, you know, the idea that what is perceived, first of all, is the world, which is what provides meaning, made me think of the early, or, you know, Division One of Being in Time, I guess. But uh, I don't really know enough about Heidegger to distinguish these different approaches. Yeah, I would I would guess that there's probably um, some Heideggerian influence here indirectly through Melton Ponzi, um, who uh, I, actually I think this book might be dedicated to him if I am not mistaken. Um, let me just take a look. Um, but anyway, um, no, I, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but um, Simon Don. Uh, was a student of, of Melo Ponzi. Um, so um, uh, there's, there's definitely that sort of lineage there. And, and so this idea of worlds as, um, um, as prior to the object, so the, the relationship of the subject is primarily to the world and only exceptionally to the object. Um, so yeah, that, that's uh, probably derived from that tradition, um, that idea. Um, 
so yeah, this this idea of um, uh, as we saw in the previous section, um, the idea that the subject in a laboratory setting is not really an adequate representation. Um, it's not really an adequate representation of the genesis of forms uh, because of the lack of emotional value to the situation. Um, so it's only um, uh, it's only in a setting where you have this emotional tension uh, that something like uh, the genesis of forms will actually take place. And and so he points here to the way that um, um, you can think of like artistic photography. Um, you can have something that uh, might be slightly out of focus or um, um, uh, the contrast is elevated uh, or in some other way, it's, it's not um, like a, a perfect representation of its subject. Um, so the, but, but that imperfection or that um, uh, less than perfect uh, representation of the, the object being photographed can actually lend it uh, more emotional value. And, uh, and this can of course be abused to like where, um, um, I don't know, adding lens flare in Photoshop, like, you know, to the extreme or whatever. Um, but uh, um, in general, the, the more um, aesthetically powerful images or the, the images that will have uh, the most um, emotional value Will, will not be the ones that have, have this sort of perfect um, uh, ge geometrical representation of the um, of the object being photographed. Uh, and this bit I thought was interesting here too, also where he talks about how uh, a perfectly round or oval face uh, would would be lifeless or, or remain cold. Um, and so this this is something you can actually um, look at when you when you um, uh, when you take composite uh, uh, photographs, uh, and this was something that um, uh, was it Dalton or I, I forget who. Um, uh, anyway, there in the late nineteenth century, um, um, they they started doing um, composite photographs to try to determine what the physiognomy of a criminal was, like what sort of facial characteristics show that someone is a criminal. Um, and these composite photographs, they, they started to discover that um, the, the image that you, so you produce a composite photograph by basically taking a, a picture of multiple people on the same film. And so all of the details get sort of blurred out and only the, um, the average remains. And you end up with a, a picture of a surprisingly, um, good-looking person like even you don't need to take pictures of like good-looking people to to produce this but the the average image of like um all the different uh people that you take a, a picture of it averages out to a, a like a, a completely symmetrical uh face uh with no like um uh like disproportions or anything and uh and that sort of corresponds to um, a good-looking face, but it also has this sort of artificial quality. Um, like, if you look at these composite images, they don't really look like real people. They look like sort of too too uh, perfect to be real or something like that. Um, 
And you can also get this effect sometimes, like, I don't know if you, uh, or for me at least, like sometimes like um, news personalities or, or like these sort of uh, uh, like perfectly symmetrical faces that have probably had like plastic surgery and everything, they look sort of artificial. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so there's, there's this sort of fine balance between like um, um, symmetrical face and uh, has this aesthetically pleasing uh, quality to it, but then if it's like too symmetrical, then <clears throat> then it ends up looking artificial. Galton, right? Yes, that's it. Um, and and this was all related to um, uh, yeah the the project of identifying criminals by their faces, and uh, uh, it's connected also to eugenics and the idea of like you know not letting criminals breed and, and, you know, make the population degenerate and so on. So all kinds of, uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty grim stuff. <laughs> um, uh, what else was there that I wanted to point out here? Um, right. And there's this also, there's this notion of, um, um, when he talks about how the subject is, is primarily oriented towards a world rather than an object. Uh, he talks about um, polarization. And we've seen this, I think, a couple of times before. But this is the idea that um, um, in perception, or, or the most fundamental form of perception is not uh, something like perceiving an object, but it's uh, the relation to a, polar, uh, a polarity in the, uh, in the environment. So. Um, um, uh, a tropism is, is like the the default form or the most basic form of perception. So that can be uh, orientation towards or away from light or um, uh, uh, towards or away from the direction of gravity or, or whatever. Um, you can have any sort of polarization of the environment in terms of some physical property and organisms can orient themselves towards that um, or in relation to that to that polarization. And this is like the most basic form of perception for Simon Don. And, and so it's um, uh, in, in the case of the human subject, uh, when, we, when we perceive a, a good form uh, or what, what is a, a truly good form and not just uh, a simple geometrical shape, um, we, we have uh, that form has relevance to some sort of polarization of the world in the same way. So, uh, like uh, a beautiful face is something that we find ourselves attracted to, or like you feel this, uh, like your your gaze is it's drawn towards the face, um, <clears throat> and so there's a sort of polarization of the world in terms of uh, um, approximation to the face and um, distance from it, and so on, um, or um, even something like much more abstract, like the the column in in the example that that Simon Don gave a, a little bit earlier, um, your eye is sort of drawn to the to the shape of the column, and it it sort of um, smoothly um, glides up and down the the column in a, in a way that's aesthetically pleasing, as opposed to um, you know something like just a, a pure cylinder, which has this sort of bulky um, I don't know like not not really um aesthetically pleasing quality to it um so 
this is this is sort of the uh, the basis for um, the aesthetic value of uh, of uh, perceived objects or or perceived images is is their relationship to this polarization of the world, uh, and you know whether they sort of draw us in or or repel us uh, in that sense. Okay, um, so we can go on from the top of. Uh, oh, actually, maybe one more thing before we go on um, is uh, there's this interesting bit here where he talks about training animals. Um, yeah, and and defeatism, uh, and so this this has to do again with the polarization of the world, but we can. Um, we can, uh, or the, those polarizations are, um, mutable. So you can, you can invert the polarization, uh, in, and so this can happen through training an animal or, um, through some sort of complicated process of, um, lived experience, I guess, in a human subject where, um, uh, through, uh, experience of, of failure, you you come to uh, perceive the world as as um, uh, affording failure rather than affording um, uh, success or affording a possibility of of success. Um, and and so, like in the case of the animal, like um, you have to say train them to perceive a human being as a um, as a um, rather than as something to be feared, as something to be approached. Uh, um, so you have to invert the polarization of, the, uh, of their environment or of their world. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so they're the same type of process is at work when you have uh, a person who develops this failure neur neurosis who uh, sort of immediately perceives any any task as being like too difficult to to uh, to take on or as something that they would uh, automatically fail at okay so now we can go on to uh, the top of 269 uh, if someone would like to read from this existence uh, yeah okay uh, this existence of a per, uh, perceptive polarity plays a dominant role in the segregation of perceptive units Neither good uh, form nor the quantity of signals can account for this segregation. The subject perceives in such a way as to be oriented relative to the world. The subject perceives to increase uh, not the quantity of information signals, nor the quality of information, but the intensity of information, the information potential of a situation. As Norbert Wiener uh, uh, puts it, uh, the, to perceive is to struggle against the entropy of a system to organize, uh, maintain, or invert an organization. It is not enough to simply say that perception consists in grasping organized wholes. In fact, perception is the act that organizes wholes. It introduces organization by analogically linking the forms contained in the subject to the signals perceived. To perceive is to retain the greatest possible quantity of signals inside the forms most deeply rooted in the subject. Perception is not merely grasping forms or recording multiple juxtaposed or successive data. Neither quality, quantity, the continuous nor the discontinuous can explain the percept this percept uh, perceptive activity. Perceptive activity is the medi uh, mediation between uh, quality and quantity. 
it is intensity, the grasping and organization of intensities in the relation of the world to the subject. Several experiments on the perception of forms uh, through vision have shown that quality does not suffice for perception. It is very difficult to perceive forms represented by colors with the same luminous intensity. On the contrary, these same forms are quite easily perceived if they are marked by a slight uh, difference in the intensity. Even when the colors are identical or absent shades of gray, the differential thresholds of intensity are remarkably low for vision, 6 over 1000. But the thresholds of frequency are even lower in differential uh, perception. The phenomena um, mentioned above thus cannot be attributed to peripheral organic conditions. What is at stake is the central perceptive process of the grasping of forms. In the same way, a weak frequency modulation of a sound cannot be easily distinguished from modulation of intensity or from very short interruptions in the sound's emission, which could be called phase modulation. The, types, uh, the different types of modulation converge toward the modulation of intensity as if the dynamisms uh, involved in perception essentially retain this type of modulation. Right. Um... So this bit here is, um, so he's talked about the, the quantity of information recorded in a, a, you know, various recording apparatuses, um, and, and then he's talked about the, the quality of information uh, or the, the, the qualitative aspect of forms uh, as, as studied by Gestalt psychology. Um, but here he's introducing, or he's trying to explain further his um, his own notion that he wants to introduce that is the mediation between the two. Um, and so uh, this is uh, the absorption or the reception of a of a perceived form is not the same. It's not the type of reception that you have in the case of uh, receiving a, a transmission. Um, you know, recording a message or something like that. So there's, um, there are forms um, uh, within the subject and the uh, subject in, in perceiving something has to um, incorporate that uh, perceived object into the forms that, uh, that they bring into the perception. Um, so they, they have to, um, the, the subject has to uh, organize the information or organize the perceived in, um, perceived object into a into a whole, but they, the subject also undergoes a transformation through the, the process of perception. So uh, perception is not just um, this sort of um, passive process of uh, taking in something coming from without. It's it's a, an active process in which the subject uh, is is, a, is um, undergoing a transformation, um, and so Simon don't points to the, these uh, experimental results. So in, these experimental psychology results that that show that uh, there's something like uh, uh, a value of intensity in uh, in perception that has this significance that. Uh, so it's not just that, um, uh, oh, sorry, to, well, to, to go back a step, the, um, the results show that um, 
it's much easier to uh, perceive a form uh, when it when the form is uh, differentiated from its environment by um, by intensity of uh, of light. So um, like a, a slightly darker or a slightly brighter shape stands out much more compared to a shape that's outlined by uh, only a difference of color, where um, where the 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 surrounding colors are uh, have the same intensity, um, and um, the this this uh, value of intensity in perception is not um, is not a, an effect of uh, like the construction of the eye or something like that because you can um, uh, uh, in in differential perception uh, so the if you're if you're just presented with um, one color and another color um, you can actually perceive um, the the thresholds for differences of frequency are actually lower than the thresholds for differences of intensity uh, so in, in just the pure um, sensation of color uh, the the color frequency is actually um, uh, you you have a, a greater discriminatory capacity for frequency than for intensity, but when it, it comes to um, identifying shapes, it's intensity that has the uh, the greater value uh, as opposed to frequency. Um, and so for Simondon, uh, or he, what Simondon argues is that this shows that there's a some sort of um, central perceptive process. So something about the way that we um, take in uh, the, the perceived uh, situation uh, is, is geared towards intensity in a way that uh, is not just uh, uh, a result of the, the construction of the AI or of our, of our sort of basic perceptual apparatus. And uh, we have the same, or we have a similar type of effect in the case of um, uh, sound transmission. So um, uh, uh, a slight frequency modulation uh, and a slight intensity modulation are very hard to distinguish from each other. Um, and they both sort of tend to sound like a, a, an, an intensity modulation. Um, and, and so there's, um, um, something about the way that our perceptual apparatus or our perceptual system is, is built, uh, sort of converges towards intensity as being like the most significant feature of, uh, uh, a perceived situation, both in visual perception and in auditory perception. Um, yeah. And so Angus has, has, uh, suggested in the chat that it would be interesting to compare this with, a um, a psychoanalytic pers perspective on retaining information inside of deeply rooted subjective forms. Um, yeah, so I think, um, I mean, we've seen uh, Simondon's uh, criticism of, of, of psychoanalysis and, and of Freud specifically um, earlier, but I think he would also be sympathetic to the idea of um, um, having something like uh, um, uh, unconscious forms uh, being involved in in the affective value of perception or the emotional value of perception. Uh, so there there would be something within the subject 
that is not necessarily accessible to uh, introspection or, or to the subject's self-knowledge um, that uh, um, would have some sort of determining role or um, influence at least on the emotional value of a, of a perceived situation. Um, so I think he would, he would uh, sort of agree to that um, approach. Okay, so let's go on from the bottom of 269. Um, let's see, this is uh, one of these long paragraphs. Um, yeah, it's not so long. Okay, so I'll read this one. <clears throat> if to perceive consists in increasing the information of the system formed by the subject in the field in which it is oriented, the conditions of perception are analogous to, the, to those of every stable structuration. A metastable state must precede, uh, must precede perception. Kant wanted to explain perception through the synthesis of the manifold of sensibility, but in fact, there are two types of manifold, the qualitative manifold and the quantitative manifold, the heterogeneous manifold and the homogeneous manifold. Gestalt theory showed that perception cannot be explained by the synthesis of the homogeneous manifold. A cloud of elements cannot produce a unity through simple addition. But there is also an intensive diversity that renders the subject world system comparable to a supersaturated solution. Perception is the resolution that transforms the tension that affected the supersaturated system into an organized structure. It could be said that every veritable perception is the resolution of a problem of compatibility. Perception reduces the number of qualitative tensions and makes them compatible by transforming them into a potential of information, a mixture of quantity and quality. A figure against a ground is not yet an object. The object is the provisional stabilization of a series of dynamisms that proceed from tensions to the aspects of the determination that characterizes the situation. By orienting in this situation, the subject can unify the aspects of qualitative and intensive heterogeneity and carry out the synthesis of the homogeneous manifold. This act of orientation indeed reacts on the milieu, which becomes simplified. The multiple worlds, a problem posed to the subject of perception, and the heterogeneous world are merely aspects of the time that precedes this act of orientation. Through its perceptive activity, the subject constitutes the unity of perception in the system formed by the world and the subject. To believe that the subject immediately grasps already fully constituted forms is to believe that perception is a pure knowledge and that forms are fully contained in the real. In fact, a recurring relation is instituted between the subject and the world in which it must perceive. To perceive is literally to take through without this active gesture, which supposes that the subject is part of the system in which the perceptive problem is posed. Perception could not take place. Borrowing from the language of axiomatics, it could be said that the world subject system is an overdetermined or supersaturated field. Subjectivity is not deforming because it is what effectuates the segregation of objects according to the forms that it contributes. Subjectivity can only be hallucinatory if it is detached from the signals received from the object. The perceptive act institutes a provisional saturation of the axiomatic of the system that is the subject plus the world. Without this coupling of the subject to the world, the problem would remain absurd or undetermined. By establishing the relation between supersaturation and indetermination, the subject of perception introduces a finite number of necessary solutions. In some cases, the problem can involve several solutions, as in reversible figures, but in general, it generally only has one, and this uniqueness constitutes the stability of perception. Um, so here we have um, 
um, yeah, so there's a, a reference to um, multi-stability or the, um, the case of images in which uh, you can see them in, in multiple ways. So there's all these familiar, yeah, the duck rabbit or the, the old woman or the, uh, the, the young woman or the, the, the two faces or the lamp or, and, and so on. Um, so, um, yeah, some of these images can be, can be seen multiple ways. Uh, so there's, there's more than one stable, um, uh, ending point, I guess, of the perceptive process. Um, but in general, we have, uh, like most, most perceptive situations are, are not, um, like this. We end with a, um, a single stable, uh, perceived object in general. Um, and, um, yeah, so in, in the perceptual process, the, the subject is, is active, um, as we've seen before. So it's not, uh, it's not just a receiving of forms, but it's a, a grasping as a, an actual process or activity of the subject. Um, and, uh, um, so there's, there's this sort of dynamic property of perception in that uh, it involves um, these tensions that the subject um, has to try to um, uh, reconcile or um, make compatible. Uh, so there's the the organization of the perceptual situation is is a product of the subject's activity and not something that's given at the outset of the perceptual um, process. Um, and so there's there's also this reference to Kant here, um, which um, is a little bit obscure. But I think what he's talking about here is um, um, the way that uh, so for for Kant um, we have this um, synthesis of the manifolds of sensibility, um, meaning that um, in in perception, we we take in um, uh, something like uh, an effect of uh, objects on us, and then we organize it in terms of space and time. Um, and uh, so Simondon suggests that, or he he argues here that um, Gestalt psychology shows that this picture doesn't really work. Um, you can't you can't sort of reassemble a whole out of um, out of uh, individual elements. Um, um, uh, yeah, so um, Nemo has a content uh, uh, a comment here um, saying that this sounds like data science and random versus sequential data. Um, I'm not super familiar with that distinction. Um, but, it's um, like uh, on a tape or versus for look. Uh, if you can have you can you there's different data structures in a computer system where, uh, like the computer can start from any point in the data if with an address, see where it what is going on what the what the memory sequence is containing, and uh, it's just like the computer is the eye as you're saying, or the you know the uh 
be swap file is the eye. It's like the uh, this idea of just being able. It's the random access memory would be the sequ- be the uh, be the availability to acquiesce what you're t- looking at at any given time from any point in the data. And um, there's also uh, then there's also the sequential elements, which were more in line with uh, what was being said about. Uh, like sequential data is uh, like on a tape, you'd have different types of sound waves, or even on a cassette tape, you have different. Uh, oh, you cut out for a second there. Uh, just one that just that there is sequential the sequ- there's sequential data science, and then there's random data science. Random data science data science is what you're usually working with on a computer, and it's like you're or or when you're looking at an image, it is random. It is random, and what you're seeing is random, but just like the computer, which I'm only saying this because it's my golden hammer, you're got to... You cut out again. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, There's always obviously some sort of, uh, you know, prior uh, notion or, like, uh, thing that that your computer's ready to receive, you know, and, and, you know, internalize and then produce into something that you can... As you know, the cons- as the uh, consumer of information uh, digest. Yeah, um, that, that, what comes to mind actually when you're talking about that is the whole process of data visualization, which uh, you take some sort of um, information uh, and then you you. Um, use it to produce a, a visualization, whether you're, it can be like a pie chart or a, a, a line or whatever, um, other different types of, of formats, but you um, you um, take information that might not really be very um, user-friendly, like just, you know, columns of numbers or whatever, and then you, you present it in a form where you can immediately see, you know, this line is going up or, or this bar is longer than this other one, and, and you can sort of have a intuitive grasp of uh, of you know what the the basic um, trends or or the basic um, relationships between different quantities are, um, and so that that process of data visualization is is a sort of um, uh, is a way of um, making information compatible with um, human perceptual forms or, or perceptual um, systems. Uh, and, and so, um, yeah, I think that fits well with what Simondo is, is uh, talking about here is that so in, in perception, we have this um, uh, active process of grasping information uh, and grasping forms um, and not just a, a passive perception. Uh, so we have to incorporate the information into our perceptual system in a in an active way. And sequentially is a much slower way of digesting data. You know, trying to uh, scrub through a video or a song to find a specific element within it, or uh, you know, get on if you try to get on uh, whatever it is. Uh, that music mixing software, uh, Ableton, you know, and, and and find a certain element in the song, then it's going. To, it's much longer process than just having like the 
immediacy of looking at it and seeing what you're seeing and knowing what it is. Like that's a, that's random and it is. So it's, it's a lot faster that way. It's, it's super analogous. That's why. And I'm, and I'm, I don't mean to derail or anything. I just was saying that that's what I'm, that's what I'm digesting. That's what I'm getting out of it. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's good to have people bring in like different, um, perspectives and, and other, um, fields that, that they, they have knowledge of, uh, because we all have our own limited, um, perspectives on this. So it, yeah, that helps to, um, give more, more context or a different, um, lens on what we're reading. Um, okay, so I think we can go on to uh, the next bit, which I think is the last couple paragraphs of the of this chapter. Yeah, I'll read if you'd uh, like. Sure. Yeah. So we're at um, right at the top of two seventy one. It is, however, necessary to distinguish the stability of perception from its pregnancy. The perception of a circle or a square is not pregnant and yet it can be very stable. This is because the pregnancy of perception is due to its degree of intensity, not its quality or the number of signals. You cut out again. I think if you're on push to talk, um, I think I think that's what's happening is you're... Um, no, I, I'm sorry about that. Sorry about yeah. that. Um, a certain perception can be pregnant for a certain subject, and while some other perception for other some other subject... The perception will be more pregnant in the proportion to how dynamic the prior state of incompatibility is. Uh, fear or intense desire yield a great intensity for perception. Even if this perception is not very clear, the perception of a smell is often confused and does not include solidly structured elements. Nevertheless, a perception that incorporates olfactory data can be very intense. Certain tonalities, certain colors, and certain timbres can be part of an intense perception without even constituting a good form. It thus seems necessary to distinguish between clarity and the pregnancy of perception. Pregnancy is veritably linked to the dynamic nature of the perceptive field. It is not just a consequence of the form alone but also, and more importantly, a consequence of the range of the solution that it constitutes for the vital problematic. Would you like for me to go on? Uh, yeah, you can go on to the end of the, the chapter, and then one more paragraph. What has been said about the segregation of perceptive units can also be applied to the genesis of concepts. The concept does not result that the synthesis of a certain number of perceptions under a relational schema gives them a unity. In order for the formation of the concept to be possible, there must be an interperceptive tension that involves the meaning of the relation of the subject to the world and to itself. An assemblage of perceptive data cannot be constituted with perceptions alone, nor can it be constituted by the conjunction of perceptions on the one hand on the one hand and an a priori form on the other even if it is mediated by a schematism <clears throat> excuse me uh, the mediation between a priori a priori and the a posteriori cannot be discovered starting from either the a priori or the a posteriori 
the mediation is not of the same nature as the terms. It is the tension, potential, and metastability of the system formed by the terms. Furthermore, a priori forms do not rigorously pre-exist perceptions. Just as each perception has its own form, there's already something of this capacity of seeing crystallization that manifests at a higher level in the birth concepts. It would be said in this sense that conceptualization is to perception what seeing crystallization is to crystallization of a single uh, chemical type. Uh, furthermore, light perception, the concept requires an ongoing reactivation in order to be maintained in its integrity and is maintained by the existence in order to be maintained in its integrity. Did I read that twice? <laughs> is, and it is maintained by the existence of quantum thresholds that sustain the distinction of concepts. This distinction is not an intrinsic property, but each concept of each concept, but a function of all the concepts present in the logical field. The entrance of new oh, You cut out again. So sorry. Feel, uh, the entrance of new concepts into this logical field can lead to the restructurization of the set of concepts, which is what every new metaphysical doctrine does. Before this restructurization, it modifies the threshold of distinction of all concepts. Right, thanks. Sorry, um, let me just scroll up here. Um, so this notion of, of pregnancy of a, of a form is um, one of the key notions of Gestalt psychology. And um, for the Gestalt psychologists, they, they sort of identified um, the pregnancy of a form or its, its quality of, of being a pregnant form with um, uh, stability or um, um, something like uh, clarity of a form. Uh, so they, they tended to take these geometrical figures as being the, the uh, typical uh, pregnant forms. Uh, and then so Simon Don points out that um, here we have, there, there's a, a divergence in terms of the emotional resonance or emotional value of a perception and uh, on the one hand, and then the um, uh, clarity or distinctness of the perception on the other hand. Um, so like, as Simodo points out here in, uh, in uh, smell, like smell is a very um, indistinct uh, sensory modality. Um, like we have a fairly limited um, capacity to distinguish different smells from each other. And, and we don't, there's nothing like a, um, a shape or a figure in 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 smell, um, but uh, at the same time, uh, a smell can have um, uh, a very strong um, emotional resonance. Like I don't know if you smell someone's perfume or that you recognize, or like uh, or aftershave or whatever, um, um, or like the smell of a certain type of food that maybe you associate with a, a person that you care about or, or something like that. Um, like any, any smell that has some sort of connection to um, something that is uh, emotionally significant, that smell will immediately sort of bring back that emotional significance, uh, even though it, it's, um, uh, it's not like a, a, a clear uh, perception or, or something distinct. Um, so 
for Simon Don, this shows that there's um, um, this quality of, of intensity uh, or this um, capacity to um, bring about uh, uh, an emotional <clears throat> an emotional resonance is is not um, identical with something like uh, a clear form or or a distinct form. Um, right, and then we have this just sort of one one paragraph, one little bit on concepts. Um, so we, he's been talking about perception all along, um, but then he he says that we have the same type of process uh, in the formation of concepts. Uh, so there's, um, it's not, so he, he's rejecting the model under which you would have some sort of um, uh, synthesis of, of a concept by um, taking a bunch of different perceptions. So like you see, you know, one dog one day and you see another dog the other day, and then you, you sort of abstract from the two dogs and you, you form the concept dog, which is whatever properties they have in common. Um, so this is like sort of the, the basic empiricist model of concept formation. And so Simon Dong is projecting this, um, um, this model. Uh, and so he's suggesting that um, um, the formation of a concept has to be related to this kind of uh, tension that, that he pointed to, this emotional tension or this um, um, intensity that he's been talking about. Uh, so it's not just um, the formation of concepts is, is a, an exceptional event and not just something that happens spontaneously. Um, there's like um, uh, an active process, uh, an, an action on the part of the subject in forming a concept. Uh, and so again, this is not something that would be um, uh, reproducible in a laboratory setting with minimal emotional relevance to the subject. Um, it's, it's something that happens sort of in the wild, in the, uh, um, in, in uh, actual real life emotional situations. Uh, and then there's this bit where he's um, sort of situating his account in relation to Kant or these Kantian concepts. Uh, and so he suggests that um, uh, insofar as you have um, um, uh, perceptions on the one hand, um, so the a posteriori, uh, and then you have concepts on the other hand, so the, the a priori, there you can't have... Um, um, you can't sort of unify them just by applying concepts, by, by thinking of concepts as just sort of um, being uh, slapped on top of perceptions. Like you, you just have the perceptive data coming in and you just um, stick them into the right concepts uh, slot. And then you, um, that's how you uh, have experience. Uh, so there's uh, Instead, we have to have a, an active process of mediation. Um, yeah, so I think this is, again, an instance of his criticism of hylomorphism. Uh, so there's um, the way that um, the a priori would, would correspond to the form, and the uh, a posteriori would be the matter. Um, and, uh, and then you would have some sort of application of the form onto the matter or, or something like that. Um, he he think, thinks that's inadequate. 
and he's suggesting that you need to have something. Um, yeah. So uh, in the introduction, he, he used this, um, this term apresenti, um, which uh, I think is the, it's the same uh, idea that he's talking about here. So it, it's something that um, is uh, actually produced in the, the process of experience or in the action of experience. So it's not that you just take um, a set of forms that pre-exists and then apply them to um, some sort of matter that comes in from the senses. Uh, instead, you're actually um, actively involved in, in producing forms uh, in the process of experience. Um, and this bit about crystallization or this analogy between um, uh, concept formation and, and, and crystallization is a bit obscure, but um, I think the idea here is that, um, so he talked about syncrystallization. So this is what he had, um, he, he talked about uh, in the physical individuation part, um, the way that you can have uh, different um, different substances that have uh, the same uh, crystalline structure uh, can sort of crystallize together. Um, so you can have something like um, granite, which is uh, uh, a composite of multiple different crystals that sort of crystallize together. Um, and uh, um, in the same way, when you have uh, the formation of a concept, it's not just um, uh, like a bunch of different perceptions that are all independent um, entities that just sort of get glued onto each other somehow. It's um, there's an actual sort of reformation or, or each of the, the um, perceptual experiences is uh, sort of undergoes a, a new process of formation in the formation of a concept. Um, right, and, and so a concept is not something that is just sort of um, generated or, or learned and then sort of um, stored in, in, a, in a box in your, in your mind somewhere. It's, it's something that has to actively be regenerated at each occasion that it's used. Um, so it's, um, it's a, a concept is something active. It's not something, uh, it's not just a, a form or a, um, uh, some sort of uh, box or something like that that you can stick um, perceptions into. And then there's this last bit here where he talks about how um, uh, there's this um, what we can call a, a logical field. So the concepts have relations to each other, um, and the uh, the introduction of a new concept will uh, restructure the whole set of concepts. So that there's um, again, it's it's an active process um, that. Uh, by introducing a new concept, you you sort of um, take on the task of restructuring your whole system of concepts, and and this is what he suggests right at the end is what um, metaphysics does, or, or I would I would assume philosophy in general. Um, you you um, introduce new concepts that require a new restructuration of the whole system of concepts. Um, and uh, it allows you to um, have a, a different um, uh, experience of the world or to, to uh, take on uh, some sort of perceptual situation in a different way than you could before. Um, so we're a little bit 
early now, but I'm, I'm going to suggest that we end here rather than starting on the next uh, chapter, um, partly just because I haven't uh, had a chance to read ahead into the next chapter, but also I think it's a good stopping place. Um, is that okay with everyone? Right, okay. Um, so yeah, let's stop here uh, and then we'll pick up from uh, the beginning of chapter two uh, in, in this part next time, um, which I think if I remember correctly is um, a bit more um, obscure or a bit more um, uh, or less obvious, I guess, than some of the, the stuff that we've seen so far. Okay, um, so good. thank you. Um, yeah, so thanks everyone for uh, your contributions today and uh, see you all next week.